Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, please visit our website at yourgracepoint.com. That's point spelled with an E on the end, P-O-I-N-T-E. The website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Now, here's Pastor Aaron Zelinsky. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Nahum. That is the minor prophet that we're dealing with here. It's kind of uh, a little bit past the middle of your Bible, if you're just kind of flipping through there trying to find it. Nahum is another one of these minor prophets that most of us have probably never heard anything about. You may not even have known that Nahum was a person, that that was a book of the Bible, anything about it, because Nahum is never quoted in the New Testament. There's one place where he talks about the feet of those who bring good news, but the actual quote that Paul is making in Romans is from Isaiah. Uh, Nahum just happens to be similar, but really not quite enough to get credit for that. Um, We need to make sure we, you're going to college, you better make sure you cite your source as well, you know, part of it. But he's largely unknown. His name, does anybody know what his name means? Comfort. All right, some of you have been studying. That's great. Love it. Nahum means comfort. That's kind of odd because it's a a prophecy all about the destruction of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. So how would that be comforting? Right, it's comforting to God's people because Assyria was... uh, doing a lot of horrible things to them and and a lot of horrible things to a lot of people. They were very, very cruel, evil empire. And one of their biggest practices uh, was, was torturing and just slaughtering all of the people they captured. And whichever ones they left alive, they dispersed them. They had a, a great travel program. Uh, they would take you and send you somewhere else and then let somebody else live in your house. Uh, it's a great strategy, but it's an evil thing to do. They, they redistributed the whole population of their empire, to separate people, to prevent uprisings, to do all those sorts of things. So it was a comfort. It's a comfort to God's people when he says, I'm going to deal with the people that are persecuting you, the people that are killing you, the people that have exiled the northern kingdom of Israel already. That would be a great comfort to know that your enemy is going to be destroyed. Think of it, probably the most recent example we have in modern history would be uh, Germany and Japan just before World War II. As both of those countries are expanding and conquering peoples and pushing their borders, that's really the last big push of anybody in in recent world history to, to conquer new lands. But could you imagine being, you know, some... Polish person, uh, that your country's just been taken over, you've got this army that's in there, they've overrun everything. One of the most comforting things you could hear is that God's going to send somebody to take care of the Germans, to take care of the Nazis. That would be a deeply comforting thing in that situation. And that's really what this is being written out of. He comes from a town, what town was he from? Somebody say it. Elkosh, yes. He is from Elkosh, a town. Anybody ever heard anything about that? No, neither of historians or geographers or archaeologists or anybody else. We know practically nothing about this town. So we have a nobody from nowhere 
that's prophesying the destruction of the greatest city in the greatest empire of the day. Look at the irony. There's this obscure guy from an obscure place and he's prophesying the destruction of the greatest empire in the world. That's what this really is. It it really did happen. The only thing we really do know is a rough time frame of when he prophesied. We don't know an exact date, but we know an exact window. In 663 BC, the Assyrians overthrew the city of Thebes. What, What country was Thebes a part of? Egypt. Thebes was one of the most powerful cities of ancient Egypt, and Assyria came in and demolished it. And in Nahum chapter 3, starting in verse 8, he says, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water all around her? And went on to describe how amazing and impenetrable Thebes was. And he says, Look, if you overthrew Thebes, don't think that you can't be overthrown. And so that happened in 663 BC. So we know that it it was written after that. Thebes has already been destroyed. There's also a limiting factor on the other end. In 612, Assyria fell to Babylon. A group of Medes and Babylonians came in and wiped out Nineveh, completely destroyed it. So this was written before 612, really at least a decade before then, before they started to lose power and, and their strength weakened. So it was sometime between 663 and 612 BC, roughly 100 years after another prophet that spoke to Nineveh. Who was that? Jonah. We see in how all this ties together. We're going to come back to that fact in a moment. So it's all about the destruction of Nineveh, but what does it begin with? Okay, the, the first part of this, the first third, the first chapter is all about the nature and character of God. He doesn't say a word about Nineveh. He just, he says, this is a prophecy about them. And then he goes on to talk about God because everything we do is grounded in the nature of God. And that's what Nahum is primarily about. It's not just Nineveh. It's telling us something about who God is and how God operates. But then in chapters two and three, it really becomes focused on the destruction of Nineveh. Do you remember we talked about uh, an ancient literary device that, that Hebrews would use referred to uh, as chiasm? Anybody remember that term? Okay, it's where there's sort of a parallel structure with the way they lead into something and the way they come out. And I've got it up on the, the screen here for you. This is what Nahum does. This is an intentional literary structure. You know, we, we have our own literary devices. Usually we, we have like an introduction, the main body. We have a conclusion and, and certain things like that. We have different types of poetry. Uh, there are sonnets, there's haiku. There's, you know, we have different types of literary structures. This is one of theirs. And if you look at the way they go through it, there's that A, B, C, D, C, B, A, where the A's are parallel to each other and so are the B's. But in one like this, the focus is D, the woe oracle, where he actually says in chapter three, verse one, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. And he goes on and, you know, woe is like in a, a term of, of destruction and, you know, warning and judgments coming. It, it's, a, it's a stark reality that's coming. And that's the focal point of it. So this is uh, the structure. If you, if you want some more information on that, let me know later. We can get you that. But as we look at this book, this this short three chapters from somebody we've never heard of, we don't know really anything about, from an obscure place prophesying against the greatest city, there are some things that we can take away in 21st century, United States of America, good old Gwinnett County in the South, right? I'm in the South. I'm not in the North anymore. 
But Stace had the Steelers shirt on during worship. Loving the Steelers. She's going to Valley Fords. We got all sorts of Pennsylvania represented. Love it. But these are the things we can take away with and that I want you to take away this morning is number one, to rejoice in God's goodness. When we see God do good things, that should make us happy, should make us thankful. But we also need to respond to God's wrath because we do see, Lord willing, we never experience his judgment. But when we see his judgment enacted, when we read things in scripture, when we think about the end, it should cause us to act a certain way the realities of God. I mean, if you've had siblings, you know, when you see your sibling get disciplined, if you're a wise child, you will take note of that and say, I'd rather learn from their experience than my own, okay? We need to do that. We need to respond to God's wrath. And thirdly, we need to remain in God's grace. And there's something significant about Nineveh that really points to this idea of remaining and staying in God's grace that we need to take note of. So first off, we want to rejoice in God's goodness. Um, you know, again, though this is about Nineveh's destruction, it, it's really about God. The whole scriptures are about God. You know, this is primarily a story of God and his creation. He made this creation, especially people. Humans are the high point, the focus of his creation. Everything went bad with sin, and now he's redeeming it and making it right. And this is a significant part of it. This first third is all about the character and nature of God because everything in life is grounded in who God is. You need to know that. Everything in life, especially for followers of Jesus, everything we do, everything we are, everything we uh, become, everything we believe is grounded in who God is, his person as a personal creator, a loving triune God who cares for his creation, who is not just a creator, but a redeemer. That is the, is the basis of everything, really the beginning of all of our theology. You pick any theological subject and the person of God lies at the base of it. Think about salvation. Why does God save people? Because one, he's our creator and he loves us. That's why we have soteriology, a theology of salvation. Ecclesiology, the study of the church or the theology of God's people. Why is there a people of God? Because God personally created them and he loves them and he's redeeming them where sin destroyed it. That's why we have a people of God. Any, anything you want, any branch of theology, any discussion of God is grounded in his loving, personal, triune nature. All of it. And that goes through to everything of our, our practice, our actions. Why do, we, why do we talk about loving our spouses the way we do in marriage? Well, because Ephesians says marriage reflects Christ in the church. And, and why does Christ love the church so much? Because he's a loving personal creator who redeemed these people to be his church. You see how that works? Everything you think of, all of our life and existence is grounded in the person of God. And so we're gonna focus on some of those aspects. Even if, if you actually read through Nahum, it's like, it can be a very depressing book. I mean, he's just ranting. And Nahum is one of the most uh, emotive writers. I mean, when you're reading this, some of these things, um, it, it's referred to as a, a staccato where he's just hitting this like phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase that builds up powerfully and has such strong repetition. You see, I didn't make a note to do this, but... I gotta find an example here. In chapter three, verse two, 
Just listen to how this builds. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of courses, dead bodies without end. You can feel that. It's powerful, it's raw. But in the midst of something like that, talking about the dead bodies without end of Nineveh as they suffer the wrath of God for their evil, there are some amazing, beautiful, good things about God. I mean, look at, uh, we're gonna look at several of these. In chapter one, verse three, he says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Now, we're gonna look a little bit later at where he's, he's getting that from. That's where God spoke to Moses and declared who he was to him. And he, Nahum amended it a little bit to fit his purposes, but this is one of the first things he says. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. How comforting is that? He's good. You could just stop right there. The Lord is good. And that's a comforting thing all in itself. Verses 12 and 13, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. He's referring to how Assyria was oppressing God's people of Judah and, and had them uh, bound. They were uh, sieging their cities. And he says, no more. That's over. I'm gonna set you free. Verse 15 Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And in the beginning of chapter two, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. When we see things like this, we should rejoice in the goodness of God knowing that no matter what, he takes care of his people. And if you're one of his, he loves you unbelievably. And even if you're not one of his, he still loves you. I mean, when we talk about John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, the world in John was that which is opposed to God's plan. And yet Jesus came to die for those that were not following him. But he came to make it so that we could. And we should rejoice in that goodness of God. You know, people say all the time, have you ever heard that, you know, the God of the Old Testament is this angry, mean, vengeful tyrant, and then the God of the New Testament is love? You ever heard that? It's entirely not true. It's the same God. It's the same story about the same God. The same God who created the world is the one that sent Jesus to redeem the world, and the same one that's coming again. There's no, there's no change. Even here, there are certain things that people overlook in terms of the context, you know, if, if you walked in and all you saw me doing was spanking my son, you might assume, man, he's an angry, mean father. Oh gosh, look at that. Well, you didn't see, like for five months, I've been telling him to stop doing that and gradually escalating consequences until finally he's getting the spanking. But there's a designated number of SWATs. Hey, that happens, you're getting three SWATs. One time we told Jordan he was getting two SWATs. And he's like, two SWATs? that'll give me a heart attack. <laughs> you know, he was like four, you know, it was great. 
God's punishment is always just. It always is appropriate. It fits the offense. It's never egregious. It's never uh, over and above. But when we look at certain things, even here, Nineveh, one of the most, again, one of the most evil empires, if you've ever researched Nineveh, they were, they were vicious. They were ruthless. I mean, the, their kings would describe these battles and they didn't just say, we destroyed these people and we obliterated their town. He would say, we captured this many people and we tortured this many. We did this to them. We slaughtered them. We piled up their dead bodies. One of their kings boasts about damming up a river with dead bodies. Okay, those are in the annals of their kings. There are ancient reliefs with carvings that show them skinning people alive. Okay, they, did, they would stake them to the ground and then skin them like an animal, alive. That's what the Assyrians did. Ruthless, evil, evil people. And who preached to, to Nineveh earlier? Jonah. And what happened when, when Nineveh repented of their evil violence and wickedness? What did God do? He relented. He didn't send the destruction. So don't tell me God is just this mean, angry tyrant that wants to punish people. When they repented and turned away from their wickedness, he, he relented. He didn't send the destruction. For over 100 years after Jonah, Nineveh was not destroyed because of the way they repented. Okay, God is absolutely loving and forgiving. And he always has been. That's not new when Jesus shows up on the scene. It's not. In fact, look at Exodus chapter 34. This is Exodus, the second book of the Bible. So you can't say, well, that's a later development. This is very, very early in the history of God and his people. And what happened is Moses wants to know God more. He says, God, let me know you. And so God says, okay, I'm gonna let you see my glory, a part of it, and I'm gonna declare my name to you. Listen to this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Okay, so this proclamation that God gives, this is God's revealing of his own name. And if you know about scripture, names are significant. Nahum means comfort. He's bringing a message of comfort. Micah means who is like Yahweh because he's calling them to be like him and Micah's delivering it like him. Abraham means father of many because God was gonna bless him with many offspring and so on. Well, the Lord's name is also significant. When he said, I am that I am, he was descri describing himself as the God who is, who is just self-existent and has life in himself. But now listen to how God describes himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Think about that. This is the supposed angry tyrant God of the Old Testament. Sounds awfully loving to me. Listen to that again. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And some of your translations might say for thousands to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is a good God. 
And we as his people should rejoice in his goodness. That's one of the reasons why we sing songs when we get together every Sunday. It's not because we just, well, that's just what we do. We get together and sing. No, we sing because God is good. And it makes us joyful. It makes us excited. We should sing about the goodness of God, among other things. We should always be thankful. Always thankful for every good thing that God has done to us. So, so number one, when you read through things like this, rejoice in the goodness of God. But God's goodness is not the only thing, okay? Yes, his primary attributes are his love and his forgiveness and his mercy. But that doesn't exhaust his personality. That doesn't exhaust his person. In fact, even in that self-revelation that we saw in Exodus 34, he goes on to say more than just his loving nature. Look at this again, where he finishes up saying that he's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Look at what he also says. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now that's usually what people come away from this passage with. And I can't understand that for the life of me. Did you see how much of that was about his love and mercy and forgiveness? And how many generations did he extend his love to? A thousand generations. And then people say, oh, look at that. He's gonna visit the iniquity of fathers on their children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And people use this and they talk about this thing called generational curses that the Bible doesn't actually talk about. Uh, what he's saying is the consequences of the sin would be visited to the third and fourth generation. But he's not being literal. God is not saying, I'm absolutely going to punish your children and your children's children and their children and their children for your sin. This, this is not being literal. Because there are places even right after this and in some of the other prophets where he says, look, the one who sins is gonna die for it. I'm not gonna punish the children for the sin of their fathers. I'm not gonna punish the fathers for the sins of their children. And besides, how many people ever say, well, they lived a righteous life, so a thousand generations of their offspring will absolutely be godly. Nobody presses that literally. Nobody even talks about that. They just say, look, to the third and fourth generation, and they forget the part right above it that he says he would keep steadfast love to a thousand generations of those that love him. What he's doing is he's making a comparison, right? He's absolutely going to deal with sin, but he's gonna, he's gonna show his love to a thousand generations of those who love him. And he's gonna deal with three or four generations of those that are evil and rail against him, okay? Are you picking that? Three or four generations, a thousand generations. That's the comparison. That's the point that's being emphasized. His love overwhelms his wrath, but his wrath is there. And we can't pretend like it's not. We can't just say, well, God loves everybody. So in the end, he's gonna forgive everybody. That's not what scripture teaches us. That's not what God has revealed about himself. Because God said, I will by no means clear the guilty. That's not what he does. And we see that in the majority of Nahum's prophecy that judgment comes. Evil will not be allowed to go on forever. It won't. It feels like it sometimes. It does. 
I mean, it feels like we've been wronged and we get wronged and we're treated wrongly forever. It feels like it sometimes. It just does. But that's not gonna go on forever. God won't let that go on forever. It may seem like it. How long was Egypt uh, or how long was Israel slaves in Egypt? Over 400 years. You know what that means? Nobody lived through all of that and saw themselves set free. Right? The generation that was set free didn't experience slavery for nearly as long as some of the others. Most of God's people during that window were born in slavery and died in slavery and never saw the promise of God carried out in their lifetime. Does that mean that God didn't keep his promise? No. It just looks different than what we think sometimes. But did God set his people free? Yes, he did. How long was Assyria an empire? Over 200 years. And there was one place, and that's why Jonah was so bitter about it, because he didn't want to see him forgiven. He wanted to see him punished. But God forgave him, but their judgment still came. Even in the creation, you know, it was over a thousand years from the creation to the flood. And it says that all of man's desires were evil and sinful and violent. When you think the Assyrians were violent, imagine how violent humanity had to be for God to send a flood and just wipe it all out. Can't even fathom how violent and cruel and wicked and evil the world was at that point. But God dealt with it. He didn't have to save Noah and his family. He didn't have to save Adam and Eve after they sinned in the garden. He could have just, I'm just gonna start over. But he didn't. But yet his wrath came. He dealt with sin. And we can be at peace. This is one of those comforting things to know that God will deal with evil. But it also should cause us to take note because God deals with sin and no one is exempt from that. There are consequences for sin. Even if we're not experiencing the judgment of God on our sin, sin just has natural consequences that we don't always get reprieved from. Sometimes we do and God is very merciful to us in that but sometimes we have to experience it. When we see the wrath of God displayed, it should keep us on track. All throughout scripture, if you do a study on the fear of the Lord, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and we know that, but there are many, many more places in scripture that speak of the fear of the Lord as keeping us away from sin. Because we've seen what God does and what God will do, that should cause us to say, I'm not going there. Again, back to the sibling thing, you know, if you see somebody receive consequences, hey, I'm not going there because I don't want that. That could be at work. Somebody does something at work and they get fired for it. You know what I'm not going to do? Whatever they did. Like my job, I'd like to keep it, you know. But we should do that with the fear of God too. When we see God's wrath, we should respond to it. His wrath should compel us towards a greater obedience. And that that shouldn't be our only motivation. We don't walk around trembling in, in, in fear of God. And so we do everything just so he won't discipline us. But there's a reality to the Lord's discipline. As his sons and daughters, it's discipline and love. But we're gonna see here in just a moment, there's a point that we have to be mindful of. So rejoice in his goodness, but respond to his wrath. Let it guide you. Let it lead you. When you see other people experiencing the wrath of God, don't rejoice and celebrate over their destruction, but stand in awe 
and say, God, thank you for forgiving me and live in light of it. But the last thing is we have to remain in God's grace. And this is a point that is often overlooked, but, but it's so powerfully demonstrated in the context of Nahum and his prophecy. What did he do? He prophesied a, a destruction of Nineveh. Well, again, who, who also prophesied to Nineveh? Jonah. And what happened? They repented and God delayed. But then when they persisted in their evil ways and returned to it, God's destruction and judgment came. See, this is really just putting together the love and, and wrath of God, his, his mercy and his justice, all in one picture and looking at both. His mercy is unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. But God has his limits. We can't just put God to the test. It doesn't end well. It never does. And that's what Nineveh did. God sent them a warning. They responded. God forgave. He relented. But they kept pushing. They went right back to their evil ways. And judgment and destruction came. Don't presume on God's grace. Don't do it. Too often we fall into this mindset that we think, oh, well, God will forgive. I actually had a conversation with a friend. We were, gosh, I think we were in middle school and we were walking to school and we had about a mile to, you know, over a mile in the snow, uphill both ways. So <laughs> uh, it actually was uphill on the way to school and often in the snow. I never got to ride a bus. I lived in town. We, uh, yeah, we just didn't have buses. But I got to walk past the donut shop every day. And if you've had any of those donuts, you know. They were amazing. And if you haven't, let me know. Next time we get back from Pennsylvania, I'll bring some. It'll ruin you on donuts. Worth it. But I remember walking to school with my friend and we were talking and we were talking about, about Jesus. And he said, yeah, well, my aunt said, you know, all I got to do is ask for forgiveness. And so it doesn't matter if I sin. I just ask God and he'll forgive me. I said, that's the wrong idea, buddy. It's not like that. God's forgiveness is not a license to do just whatever you feel like doing because, oh, God will forgive me. God loves me. He's a forgiving God. He's a good God. He, he's absolutely a good God, a loving, forgiving God, but he's not an idiot, <laughs> right? We can't pull one over on God and say, he doesn't know I'm not really serious. He knows. I mean, think about the kid that, that get, gets in the cookie jar, right? You, you warn them, you say, don't do it. I'm sorry, I won't do that again. They, you know, brushing the crumbs off their hands. And then an hour later, you see him back in the cookie jar, hey, I thought we said, you know, you don't need to be stealing cookies out of it. I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Wiping all the crumbs off, the chocolate off the mouth. An hour later, they're back in the cookie jar. And then the hour after that, the next day, the first thing you wake up in the morning and there they are in the cookie jar. How long do you think you're gonna let that go on as a parent before the, the consequences escalate severely? Yeah. They know the second time. You've been told once. That's all you get. But God, God is the same way. You're not gonna presume on God's grace and say, oh, I'm sorry. But we do, how many times do we do that? We sin and then we say, oh God, I'm so sorry. And, and we shed big tears and, and then we go do it again. 
And then the next week we have this time at church and we, we cry and we weep and we, I'm sorry, God. And then what do we do? We go and do the same thing. We go do it again. And then we go and do it again. And then we go and do it again. You can't presume on God's grace. That is a dangerous place to be. Very dangerous. Because God is loving, God is good, God is forgiving, but God deals with sin. If you look at Hebrews chapter 10, this, this gets real serious real fast. If we go on sinning deliberately, in other words, we know what we're doing is wrong and we're like, we're, we're just gonna keep doing it. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And this is in the context of discussing Jesus as our sacrifice. In other words, at a certain point, if you just say, you know, whatever, I'm really gonna just do what I wanna do. His sacrifice is not for your sin. There's no longer a sacrifice to cover that because that's a whole nother thing. Don't be lulled into complacency. For us as Americans, we, we live one of the most affluent lives the world has ever known. Ancient kings and queens would long to live the life that you live. Seriously, you have toilet paper. You have air conditioning. They, they didn't have those things. I mean, things we take for granted, the kind of shoes that we have. We have amazing comforts in just little things that, that add up. That, uh, I'm telling you, we, we have such an affluent society, so much wealth, so much prosperity, so much materialism. Even the poorest among us are better off than probably 99% of human history. That's just the reality of where we're at. And I thank God for these things. They're wonderful, but they lead us astray so easy. And while we feel like we have so much in the way of wealth and prosperity and material things, let's be honest, our culture is ravaged, completely ravaged emotionally, mentally, relationally. Who has not been touched by anxiety, by depression, by great sorrow and mourning and loss and grieving? Those things are still there. We still need Jesus to touch us. We still can't just take the, the, all these great things we have and say, well, we're good. We don't really need God. We need him desperately. Amen. We absolutely do. And we can't let the, the material things lull us into this complacency like, well, God just must be happy with us. He's given us all this stuff. We gotta stay focused. We have to follow Jesus very, very closely. And I think that's the ultimate message of Nahum. And I think that's why uh, we see something like Micah, you know, who is like Yahweh, sandwiched right between Jonah and Nahum. That, that's not an accident. Like, that's intentional. Because God forgave, but what is God really like? He's forgiving, but you better not presume on that grace because judgment will come. And that's the same for us. And you may be thinking, well, that was the Old Testament. Those weren't God's, you know, people in the same type of covenant we're in. We have the new covenant. And so we can, we can go there. In Romans chapter 11, this is Paul talking to uh, non-Israelite followers of Jesus, referred to as Gentiles, okay? 
That would be all of us, unless you happen to have some Jewish history, great, but you're in this thing also. So the Gentiles would say, well, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. In other words, he's comparing the people of God to a tree, an olive tree. And he says that the natural branches, the physical descendants of Abraham have been broken off because of their unbelief. They deny Jesus as the Messiah. They are no longer considered the people of God. No one who denies Jesus as the Messiah can ever be considered the people of God. So when we talk about like Israel as a political state, that nation between the Med and the Jordan, they are not the people of God as such. They deny Jesus as the Messiah. John says, if you don't have the son, you don't have the father either. They were broken off. So that you as a Gentile, a non-Jew who believes in Jesus could be grafted in. And we think, hey, that's pretty good. That's a good deal. We get to be a part of God's people. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And he goes on to encourage them to stay faithful. If God dealt with rebellious sinful people, he's going to deal with rebellious, sinful people. And just because like Nineveh, we had this encounter where we turned to God and he, he forgave us, doesn't mean we now have a license to go sin and just do whatever and not think God's judgment won't come. That's the message of Nahum. It's a comforting message to those that are taking refuge in the Lord, but it's a warning It's a warning to those who may presume on God's grace and feel like I don't really have to grow. I can just kind of go to church on Sunday and then, you know, do whatever. I don't really have to follow Jesus. That's what the weird people do. Well, there's no such thing as being a Christian and not following Jesus. You know, that's the life we've been called to in Christ. And so I wanna challenge you. Take what Nahum has revealed about God, because remember, He talked about Nineveh's destruction, but he was saying something about God. Take what he said about God and live in light of it. Act on it. Truly, when I I talk about rejoicing in God's goodness, do that. Go home and talk with your family about how good God is. Rejoice in it. Respond to his wrath. When you see his judgment displayed, when you read things in scripture, live accordingly. But above all for us, remain in God's grace. He's redeemed us. He's brought us out of slavery to sin, to selfishness, to the enemy. And he's, he's made us his family, his sons and daughters. Remain in that. Don't presume on his grace. Don't put him to the test. Stay faithful. Because God's love is incredible. But it doesn't overrule and make it like there's no wrath or judgment. We have to treat God as who he is, not who we want him to be. And this is how he's revealed himself. So if you take anything away, just take note of God's person, God's nature, God's character. His love is incredible, but his wrath is there. We have to be aware of both. Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, the website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Until next time, God bless you.